Chapter Seven, Part Two of the Teeth of the Tiger. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Teeth of the Tiger by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Seven, Shakespeare's Works, Volume Eight. Since the Fauville murders, the house had been left in the charge of the porter. All the rooms and all the locks had been sealed up except the inner door of the workroom, of which the police kept the keys for the purposes of the inquiry. The big study looked as it did before, though the papers had been removed and put away, and there were no books and pamphlets left on the writing-table. A layer of dust, clearly visible by the electric light, covered its black leather and the surrounding mahogany. "'Well, Alexandre, old man,' cried Don Luis, when they had made themselves comfortable, "'what do you say to this? It's rather impressive, being here again, what?' But this time no barricading of doors, no bolts, eh? If anything's going to happen, on this night of the 15th of April, we'll put nothing in our friends' way. They shall have full and entire liberty. It's up to them this time. Though joking, Don Luis was nevertheless singularly impressed, as he himself said, by the terrible recollection of the two crimes which he had been unable to prevent, and by the haunting vision of the two dead bodies. And he also remembered with real emotion the implacable duel which he had fought with Madame Fauville, the woman's despair and her arrest. "'Tell me about her,' he said to Mazeroux. "'So she tried to kill herself?' "'Yes,' said Mazeroux, "'a thorough-going attempt, though she had to make it in a manner which she must have hated. She hanged herself in strips of linen torn from her sheets and underclothing and twisted together. She had to be restored by artificial respiration. She is out of danger now, I believe, but she is never left alone, for she swore she would do it again. She has made no confession?' "'No. She persists in proclaiming her innocence.' And what do they think at the public prosecutors, at the prefects? Why should they change their opinion, chief? The inquiries confirm every one of the charges brought against her, and in particular it has been proved beyond the possibility of dispute that she alone can have touched the apple, and that she can have touched it only between eleven o'clock at night and seven o'clock in the morning. Now the apple bears the undeniable marks of her teeth. Would you admit that there are two sets of jaws in the world that leave the same identical imprint? No, no, said Don Luis, who was thinking of Florence Lavassar. No, the argument allows of no discussion. We have here a fact that is clear as daylight, and the imprint is almost tantamount to a discovery in the act. But then how, in the midst of all this, are we to explain the presence of whom, chief? Nobody. I had an idea worrying me. Besides, you see, in all this there are so many unnatural things, such queer coincidences and inconsistencies, that I dare not count on a certainty which the reality of tomorrow may destroy. They went on talking for some time in a low voice, studying the question in all its bearings. At midnight they switched off the electric light in the chandelier, and arranged that each should go to sleep in turn, and the hours went by as they had done when the two sat up before, with the same sounds of belated carriages and motor-cars, the same railway whistles, the same silence. The night passed without alarm or incident of any kind. At daybreak the life out of doors was resumed, and Don Luis, during his waking hours, had not heard a sound in the room except the monotonous snoring of his companion. "'Can I have been mistaken?' he wondered. "'Did the clue in that volume of Shakespeare mean something else? Or did it refer to events of last year, events that took place on the date set down?' In spite of everything, he felt overcome by a strange uneasiness as the dawn began to glimmer through the half-closed shutters. A fortnight before nothing had happened either to warn him, and yet there were two victims lying near him when he woke. At seven o'clock he called out, "'Alexandre! Eh, what is it, chief? You're not dead?' "'What's that? Dead? No, chief, why should I be? Quite sure. Well, that's a good, and why not you? 
oh it'll be my turn soon considering the intelligence of those scoundrels there's no reason why they should go on missing me they waited an hour longer then perenna opened a window and threw back the shutter i say alexandre perhaps you're not dead but you're certainly very green mazeroux gave a wry laugh upon my word chief i confess that i had a bad time of it when i was keeping watch while you were asleep were you afraid to the roots of my hair i kept on thinking that something was going to happen but you too chief don't look as if you had been enjoying yourself were you also he interrupted himself on seeing an expression of unbounded astonishment on don luis's face what's the matter chief look on the table that letter he looked there was a letter on the writing-table or rather a letter card the edges of which had been torn along the perforation marks and they saw the outside of it with the address the stamp and the postmarks did you put that there alexandre you're joking chief you know it can only have been you it can only have been i and yet it was not i but then don luis took the letter card and on examining it found that the address and the postmarks had been scratched out so as to make it impossible to read the name of the addressee or where he lived but that the place of posting was quite clear as was the date paris four january nineteen blank blank so the letter is three and a half months old said don luis he turned to the inside of the letter. It contained a dozen lines, and he at once exclaimed, Hippolyte Fauville's signature!' "'And his handwriting,' observed Mazeroux. "'I can tell it at a glance. There's no mistake about that. What does it all mean? A letter written by Hippolyte Fauville three months before his death?' Perenna read aloud, "'My dear old friend, I can only, alas, confirm what I wrote to you the other day. The plot is thickening around me. I do not yet know what their plan is, and still less how they mean to put it into execution. But everything warns me that the end is at hand. I can see it in her eyes. How strangely she looks at me sometimes! Oh, the shame of it! Who would ever have thought her capable of it? I'm a very unhappy man, my dear friend. And it's signed Hippolyte Fauville, Mazeroux continued, and I declare to you that it's actually in his hand, written on the 4th of January of this year to a friend whose name we don't know, though we shall dig him out somehow, that I'll swear, and this friend will certainly give us the proofs we want. Mazeroux was becoming excited. Proofs? Why, we don't need them. They're here. Monsieur Fauville himself supplies them. The end is at hand. I can see it in her eyes. Her refers to his wife, to Marie Fauville, and the husband's evidence confirms all that we knew against her. What do you say, chief? You're right, replied Perenna, absent-mindedly. You're right. The letter's final. Only... Only what? Who the devil can have brought it? Somebody must have entered the room last night while we were here. Is it possible? For after all, we should have heard. That's what astounds me. It certainly looks like it. Just so. It was a queer enough job a fortnight ago, but still we were in the passage outside while they were at work in here, whereas this time we were here, both of us, close to this very table. And on this table, which had not the least scrap of paper on it last night, we find this letter in the morning. A careful inspection of the place gave them no clue to put them on the track. They went through the house from top to bottom, and ascertained for certain that there was no one there in hiding. Besides, supposing that any one was hiding there, how could he have made his way into the room without attracting their attention? There was no solving the problem. "'We won't look any more,' said Perenna. "'It's no use. In matters of this sort, some day or other, the light enters by an unseen cranny, and everything gradually becomes clear. Take the letter to the Prefect of Police, tell him how we spent the night, and ask his permission for both of us to come back on the night of the 25th of April. There's to be another surprise that night, and I'm dying to know if we shall receive a second letter through the agency of some Mahatma. 
they closed the doors and left the house. While they were walking to the right, toward La Muette, in order to take a taxi, Don Luis chanced to turn his head to the road as they reached the end of the boulevard Suchet. A man rode past them on a bicycle. Don Luis just had time to see his clean-shaven face and his glittering eyes fixed upon himself. "'Look out!' he shouted, pushing Mazeroux so suddenly that the sergeant lost his balance. The man had stretched out his hand, armed with a revolver. A shot rang out. The bullet whistled past the ears of Don Luis, who had bobbed his head. "'After him!' he roared. "'You're not hurt, Mazeroux?' "'No, chief.' They both rushed in pursuit, shouting for assistance. But at that early hour there were never many people in the wide avenues of this part of the town. The man, who was making off swiftly, increased his distance, turned down the rue Octave Fuyet, and disappeared. "'All right, you scoundrel! I'll catch you yet!' snarled Don Luis, abandoning a vain pursuit. "'But you don't even know who he is, chief.' "'Yes, I do. It's he.' "'Who?' "'The man with the ebony stick. He's cut off his beard and shaved his face, but I knew him for all that. It was the man who was taking pot-shots at us yesterday morning from the top of his stairs on the boulevard Richard Wallace, the one who killed Inspector Anceny, the blackguard. How did he know that I had spent the night at Fauville's? Have I been followed then and spied on? But by whom? And why? And how?' Mazeroux reflected and said, "'Remember, chief, you telephoned to me in the afternoon to give me an appointment.' for all you know in spite of lowering your voice you may have been heard by somebody at your place don luis did not answer he thought of florence that morning don luis's letters were not brought to him by mademoiselle levasseur nor did he send for her he caught sight of her several times giving orders to the new servants she must afterward have gone back to her room for he did not see her again in the afternoon he rang for his car and drove to the house on the boulevard suchet to pursue with mazeroux by the prefect's instructions a search that led to no result whatever. It was ten o'clock when he came in. The detective sergeant and he had some dinner together. Afterward, wishing also to examine the home of the man with the ebony stick, he got into his car again, still accompanied by Mazeroux, and told the man to drive to the boulevard Richard Wallace. The car crossed the Seine and followed the right bank. Faster, he said to his new chauffeur, through the speaking-tube, I'm accustomed to go at a good pace. You'll have an upset one fine day, chief, said Mazeroux. "'No fear,' replied Don Luis. "'Motor accidents are reserved for fools.' They reached the Place de l'Alma. The car turned to the left. "'Straight ahead!' cried Don Luis. "'Go up by the Trocadero.' The car veered back again, but suddenly it gave three or four lurches in the road, took the pavement, ran into a tree, and fell over on its side. In a few seconds a dozen people were standing round. They broke one of the windows and opened the door. Don Luis was the first. "'It's nothing,' he said. "'I'm all right. And you, Alexandre?' They helped the sergeant out. He had a few bruises and a little pain, but no serious injury. Only the chauffeur had been thrown from his seat, and lay motionless on the pavement, bleeding from the head. He was carried into a chemist's shop, and died in ten minutes. Mazeroux had gone in with the poor victim, and, feeling pretty well stunned, had himself been given a pick-me-up. When he went back to the motor-car, he found two policemen entering particulars of the accident in their notebooks, and taking evidence from the bystanders. But the chief was not there. Perena, in fact, had jumped into a taxicab and driven home as fast as he could. He got out in the square, ran through the gateway, crossed the courtyard, and went down the passage that led to Mademoiselle Levasseur's quarters. He leapt up the steps, knocked, and entered without waiting for an answer. The door of the room that served as a sitting-room was opened, and Florence appeared. He pushed her back into the room and said, in a tone furious with indignation, "'It's done. The accident has occurred.' and yet none of the old servants can have prepared it, because they were not there, and because I was out with the car this afternoon. 
Therefore, it must have been late in the day between six and nine o'clock that somebody went to the garage and filed the steering rod three-quarters through. "'I don't understand. I don't understand,' she said with a scared look. "'You understand perfectly well that the accomplice of the ruffians cannot be one of the new servants, and you understand perfectly well that the job was bound to succeed, and that it did succeed beyond their hopes. There is a victim who suffers instead of myself.' "'But tell me what has happened, monsieur. You frighten me. What accident? What was it?' The motor-car was overturned. The chauffeur is dead. Oh, she said, how horrible! And you think that I can have... Oh, dead! How horrible! Poor man! Her voice grew fainter. She was standing opposite to Perena, close up against him. Pale and swooning, she closed her eyes, staggered. He caught her in his arms as she fell. She tried to release herself, but had not the strength, and he laid her in a chair while she moaned repeatedly. "'Poor man! Poor man!' Keeping one of his arms under the girl's head, he took a handkerchief in the other hand and wiped her forehead, which was wet with perspiration, and her pallid cheeks, down which the tears streamed. She must have lost consciousness entirely, for she surrendered herself to Perena's cares without the least resistance, and he, making no further movement, began anxiously to examine the mouth before his eyes, the mouth with the lips usually so red, now bloodless and discoloured. Gently passing one of his fingers over each of them, with a continuous pressure, he separated them, as one separates the petals of a flower, and the two rows of teeth appeared. They were charming, beautifully shaped and beautifully white, a little smaller, perhaps, than Madame Fauville's, perhaps also arranged in a wider curve. But what did he know? Who could say that their bite would not leave the same imprint? It was an improbable supposition, an impossible miracle, he knew, and yet the circumstances were all against the girl, and pointed to her as the most daring, cruel, implacable, and terrible of criminals. Her breathing became regular. He perceived the cool fragrance of her mouth, intoxicating as the scent of a rose. In spite of himself, he bent down, came so close, so close, that he was seized with giddiness, and had to make a great effort to lay the girl's head on the back of the chair, and to take his eyes from the fair face with the half-parted lips. He rose to his feet and went. End of chapter 7